It's Tuesday, December 31st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Americans are spending more money on faster internet speeds on the promise of faster load times and higher quality streaming. But is it really worth it? Recent tests by the Wall Street Journal show that a typical household doesn't use most of their bandwidth while streaming and only get marginal gains from upgrading your speed. Shalini Ramachandran, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for why upgrading your bandwidth might not be the best choice. Next, as the impeachment inquiry got underway this year, it all started with a whistleblower complaint against the president. And as President Trump continues to cast doubt on all the allegations, we're awaiting a Senate trial in the new year. Whistleblowing has been around since the beginning of the country and has always been a tool to prevent the abuse of power by those who hold it. Allison Stanger, author of Whistleblowers, Honesty in America from Washington to Trump, joins us to discuss what prompted the first whistleblower protection law to be enacted and how protecting them is more important than ever. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. One group of our panelists um, who, were, who were streaming seven things at once only had used a median speed of 7.1 megabits per second. And many, and these panelists were the ones who were paying for speeds of 100 megabits per second or more. Joining us now is Shalini Ramachandran, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Shalini. Thanks for having me. One of the things that everybody wants in their home is a strong internet connection and beyond that, a fast internet connection. Nobody wants to get bogged down with downloads, taking too long, or when you're streaming your your shows on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu, whatever it is, uh, you know, nobody wants it to be lagging or that low quality stuff. And a lot of times what internet service providers are selling you are faster speeds. You want to pay more uh, megabits per second, things like that. But you guys did an interesting look into how this actually works. And the truth about faster internet is it's usually not worth it. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, we were just coming off, working off this premise that the cable and phone companies that sell us our internet are marketing faster speeds and saying that you're going to be able to stream better and do all the things that you do on the internet um, better with faster speeds. So we just wanted to ask, is that true? And so what we did was we got roughly 50 of our journalists to uh, participate in this trial and this sort of panel. And what we we studied it was their actual performance of these various streaming applications. And one major test that we did was just ask everybody to push their internet connection to the, the, the I guess, really try to break their internet connection by streaming <laughs> a bunch of things at once. So you had people, I mean, there was like seven to eight different devices running at the same time streaming, uh, whatever it is, shows, YouTube videos, a bunch of things. And, and then one group of our panelists were, who were streaming seven things at once only had used a median speed of 7.1 megabits per second. And many and these panelists were the ones who were paying for speeds of 100 megabits per second or more. So this is when they were trying to break their connection. It really was only about seven, seven megabits per second average. So, so you, can, you can kind of you know, extrapolate from there that it's, it's kind of difficult to max out your bandwidth. So even if you're paying for higher bandwidth, higher speeds, on average, you're really using the the same amount as everybody else. A lot. It seems to me that a lot of times what it is is, you know, these services like Netflix and Hulu, they compress videos, they do all sorts of stuff. I mean, they're optimizing the bandwidth use on their end. So it's not like you're really going to, you know, use your your entire total at any one point. 
That's exactly right. And all, all of these major tech companies that are some of our biggest video providers today with streaming, they do a ton of things just to compress their videos in a smart way because they, their major goal is that they want anybody to be watching their stuff. So whether you're on a slow or fast connection. So the net result is that they're often giving you pretty good quality videos at a pretty low speed rate. And we also just found that there's not that much difference in quality. So in resolution and in startup time, what we call like from you, this, the minute you, or the, the second you press play to when you actually see something stream, we weren't able to see many significant differences in quality between people paying for less than 55 megabits per second and people paying for more than 250 megabits per second. In the article for, of all the people that were uh, testing this from the Wall Street Journal, you subscribe to one of the lower tiers, 15 megabits per second. And, right. and uh, I think you had about seven different streams going as well and didn't really did. have any issues with quality. Right. In fact, it was sort of by design. I, I wanted to try and see, well, let me get the slowest speed tier I can and see what happens. <laughs> and I, I was streaming seven things at once and uh, didn't see any difference in quality. And what, it, what, did, what we did see in the data is that I used a significant chunk of my bandwidth for, uh, so I used 15 megabits per second or more for a significant chunk of that test, but it didn't translate into any quality deficiencies. In what case would it be really good to have or to pay for extra fast speeds? I think the the cases that that at least the companies talked about when they when we reached out to them for comment, the big browser providers, they were talking about um, ultra HD gaming. So it's called 4K. Not mm-hmm. not a lot of people use this stuff today, but it's something that some a small sector section of people do. Um, but even 4K streams, just for for some context, um, they use maybe like 25, 35 megabits per second when when they're really going all at once on a 4K capable device. Now. Not many people have those. So just just the context, you know, what we're talking about are speeds being marketed to of 200, 300, 400 gigabit. So it's still well within the range um, if you wanted to be streaming 4K and doing all that once. Now, what they're saying is, well, what if you're streaming like several 4K things at once or like, you know, had, you know, connected home with lots and lots and lots of devices. But again, for some context, um, a connected home with devices like to turn off your lights over the Internet is going to be a small, tiny, tiny request. If you have like maybe hundreds of devices or something, you might potentially, you know, hit up a Against some minutes, but these aren't all going at the same time. So it's really that's that's really the, the the crux of the thing is: Are you doing a bunch of things that are hugely high bandwidth at the same time? And not a lot of people are doing that. You know, the first thing that you do when you have a problem, you think things are going slow, you call your internet service provider. The first thing they want to do is sell you these faster speeds, but it's not necessarily all worth it. Uh, did you guys identify kind of that sweet spot deal, like? how much you, the average person or the average household really needs. What our researchers say is, you know, beyond 100 megabits per second, you're going to get limited benefits, you know, very marginal benefits. Now, that's even a conservative. I mean, like, like you said, I, I have 15, and we're doing just fine. Now, there's a, a two adults in my household and a baby, so it's not the same as if you had, like, seven people in your household all streaming. So, But basically, even if you did, our, our researchers say beyond 100, you're, you're not going to get much benefit. But, you know, even 50 is probably good for most people. Shalini Ramachandran, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it.
Well, I think it's a scandal that he knew before. I go a step further. I think he probably helped write it. Okay? That's what the word is. And I think it's uh, — I give a lot of respect for The New York Times for putting it out. It just happened. As I'm walking up here, they handed it to me. And I said to Mike, I said, whoa, that's something. That's big stuff. That's a big story. He knew long before, and he helped write it, too. It's a scam. It's a scam. Joining us now is Allison Stanger, political and economics professor at Middlebury College and author of the new book, Whistleblowers, Honesty in America from Washington to Trump. Thanks for joining us, Allison. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's a perfect time for the book to come out, considering all of what's happening in Washington right now with the current whistleblower complaint against President Trump. But in your book, you really do a great job of framing whistleblowing as this very important but unrecognized form of civil disobedience. This has been going on since the beginning of our country, since the beginning of America. And whistleblowers have this history of holding people accountable, elites accountable, and to prevent the abuse of power of those that have it. This is something that's kind of going on right now, as I said. In the book, you go through all sorts of stuff. You start off with Essex Hopkins, who was the first commander of the Navy. You talk about Edward Snowden and a bunch of other examples. Let's start there, though, with Essex Hopkins and what his story was, because his story is really what uh, why we have the first whistleblower protection law uh, in the country. Tell, uh, start us off there. That's that's right. Essex Hopkins and the first whistleblower protection law is incredibly important to understand right now because whistleblowing is America's DNA. It is not a partisan issue. It's an American issue. We passed the world's first whistleblower protection act in 1778. That was in response to a man by the name of Essex Hopkins, who was first commander in chief of the U.S. Navy. He was removed from his office and it led to the law basically because he abused his public office for private gain. He was not a savory character. He tortured British prisoners of war. He used horrible rhetoric and he hurled insults at Congress. But his biggest transgression was he defied Congress on multiple occasions. General George Washington and Congress would tell him to send the U.S. Navy to a certain place to engage the British. And he would just take the ships where he wanted to take them. I know it's some pretty blatant stuff that he was doing. Yeah, because he was a Rhode Islander, his commercial interests were at stake, and he wanted to make sure that his economic interests were served. Unfortunately, they were bound up in the slave trade. So it's a really interesting story that leads to our first whistleblower protection law and very much shows that whistleblowing is about making sure our public officials are working for the United States, not for themselves. And in the case of Essex Hopkins, it was 10 people that got together and wrote a letter to Congress basically laying out all this stuff. You know, he's not listening to you guys. He's mistreating prisoners. Tell yes. us how he responded to that. I mean, it ended up going so far that they removed him. But what did he do to the whistleblowers once they found out who they were? And then how did that lead to the first whistleblower law? He actually retaliated against the whistleblowers. He was a Rhode Islander with high social standing in Rhode Island. And there were 10 sailors who filed the complaint but two of them had the misfortune of also residing in Rhode Island, where he had enormous social power. So they were thrown in jail. Congress insisted that they be released from jail. They paid their bail and their legal fees. And they also legislated that all the records of the proceedings be made public. So that's the reason this story can be told today. I mean, it's so interesting. And, and you know, it proves the importance of why we have to protect the whistleblowers. Obviously, I want to fast forward to where we are currently right now. And this is one of the discussions that we're having 
about the protection of the current whistleblower against the president of the United States. People are casting doubt over his account. He might have heard things secondhand. And the president has said, you know, I want to see him. I want to meet him. I want to know who this person is. Right now, Congress is figuring out how to keep his identity secret still. As it is already, we know he's a CIA officer. Talk about what whistleblowers go through once they go public with their allegations. This is a pretty standard pattern because whistleblowers provide a public service and they often wind up losing everything. So that's why whistleblower protection is extraordinarily important. What you need to understand about the current case is that this involves a case of national security whistleblowing, which is the most fraught because the intelligence community is very secretive in order to protect national security. They need to keep secrets, but in order to blow the whistle, you've got to reveal secrets. So for whistleblowers, I interviewed all the NSA whistleblowers and also the senior leadership of the NSA. So I have some familiarity with the intelligence community, and that's why I think it's very important to focus on the content of the complaint. There's a lot of noise and things being slung back and forth. In a sense, the White House is just throwing things at the wall to see what sticks. But nobody is defending the behavior in the complaint, which is really fascinating. And that complaint indicates a cover-up of both a national security threat, the shadow foreign policy being run out of the White House through the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, also through the Attorney General William Barr, and now it seems perhaps Secretary of State Pompeo. That's a foreign policy completely at odds with the official foreign policy of the United States, which is administered by the State Department, for which funds are appropriated by Congress. Congress has to approve the military aid that was withheld. That's a national security threat, that shadow foreign policy. There's also a threat to democracy from within that's pretty obvious. The president is celebrating foreign electoral interference, and it seems pretty clear that we want Americans to elect our officials, not foreigners. So the content of the complaint is what should be focused on, not all the name-calling. And because this is taking place within the intelligence community, they have a different set of rules for whistleblowing. The, the country is kind of learning this as we go, as the news is going so fast with this. But in any other department of the government, you know, you can go straight to a congressman or somebody else and just kind of throw the complaint out there. But because there are secrets to be protected, because there is national security at risk, you know, possibly at risk, that's why we have this whole procedure of going to the inspector general. You have to understand it's a very rickety procedure. In my view, it's a miracle that this complaint ever saw the light of day because it's much more common for it just to be suppressed. And it somehow went forward. It's a miracle because the law says explicitly that national security employees are excluded from protection. That's the Whistleblower Protection Enhancement Act. But there's an executive order that set up this process to try to carve out a safe space for national security whistleblowers through the Intelligence Community Inspector General. And that's the way the complaint rose to the top. But it's very uh, rare for there to be Intelligence Community whistleblowers. That's a barometer of how serious the situation is. There's a real fear that democracy itself is threatened. And it's not a partisan issue. It's an American issue. But increasingly, these people in the intelligence community are stepping into the roles of whistleblowers. I mean, they are privy to more of the secrets, I guess. That could be a reason why exactly. But they are the ones ones that are kind of stepping into these roles now. Yeah, you've put your finger right on it. And that's something I trace in my book, that the intelligence community has been blowing the whistle on Donald Trump since his election. They've been behaving in very atypical fashion. And they're doing so not because they've suddenly turned partisan. It's not a partisan community. Community, they're doing so because they think the system itself, the rule of law system in our democracy, are threatened by a president who is using his office to advance the Trump brand rather than to uphold the rule of law 
and his oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So they've been sounding the alarm for the past few years, and this is just the latest, most official manifestation. And since we love whistleblowers in this country because it's such a longstanding tradition, the Republicans are somewhat stuck because Americans aren't against whistleblowing. So that's the unusual situation we find ourselves in. One of the interesting things I I noted in your book, though, is how often whistleblowers are believed. I think in the book you mentioned maybe 5 to 20% of whistleblowers succeed in having their assertions believed. So while we mm-hmm. want to know the secrets and we want somebody to tell us when something is going uh, wrong, sometimes it's hard to get behind them. You go through a bunch of examples in the book, and Edward Snowden is one of them. And there was always this discussion whether he was a whistleblower or not, even though he revealed a bunch of secrets. Edward Snowden is a really interesting case because he's someone who did not complain through the inspector general system. Right. The interesting thing about that, though, is everybody said he should have done it. He instead chose to flee the country and leak the information that way. And he was perhaps right to do that because the man in the inspector general position in the NSA at the time of the Stone leaks, George Allard, was actually removed from his post as inspector general in 2016 for, guess what, whistleblower retaliation. So there is a real bias in the intelligence community against whistleblowers for reasons I've already talked about. That's why one day Snowden may be our first traitor patriot. He initiated a public discussion that would have never taken place without his actions. And basically he revealed that standard operating procedures in the NSA, there were emergency measures taken after 9-11 that were completely justified because the nation was at war. We'd just been attacked. But those emergency procedures became standard operating procedure without any kind of public discussion or the American people knowing about it. So he initiated a public discussion that led to changes in the Patriot Act. And for that, I think he did a public service. Obviously, what we're going through right now in the country with this current whistleblower complaint, it's all playing out very rapidly in the news, and we're getting little snippets of details here and there. Do you think there's going to be a lot more whistleblower actions in the years to come, whether it's with this president or with other presidents, as people start seeing things, do you think people are going to you know, have the will to speak out more? The fact of the matter is the complaint indicates misconduct at the highest levels to which many people were witnesses. So there are other people who can corroborate the whistleblower's complaint. And I think that's going to happen. But you're also seeing the inspector generals starting to speak out. Just today, the inspector general of the State Department is meeting with Congress at his request And that's very interesting to me because he will know about any complaints within the State Department about this behavior. In a sense, the inspector generals are democracy's tripwire. They're our insurance policy that we keep democracy on the rails. And the good thing is we're seeing the system working in that regard. I suggest everybody check out the book. It came out at the perfect time. I read in one of these articles that you've been working on this book for seven years. So it's yeah. not its not like, uh, you know, it, it came out because of what, what's going on right now. So, no, it, it, it's, it's a yeah. great read, and I suggest everybody check it out. The book is called Whistleblowers, Honesty in America from Washington to Trump. Allison Stanger, political and economics professor at Middlebury College, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.